Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to pick back up at chapter 7. And so um, we're going to be getting in there pretty quickly. So uh, turn there, tap there, whatever you need to do. The the scriptures will also be up on the, the screen for you. Today, this sermon is going to be entitled, God's Plan. And I, I think that that's important, and you're going to hear that throughout the, the sermon of redirecting us to what God has originally designed. And so what Paul is going to be uh, discussing throughout all of chapter 7, in fact, throughout all of First Corinthians, really, is that he is reminding people th- of how God had originally created things, reminding the people of God, bringing them back to the reality of their calling, their first love, and God's original plan. And so, of course, in chapter 7, uh, there is uh, many issues that are going on in the church of Corinth, and uh, particularly in regards to marriage, especially in this passage that we're going to be reading today. And so, again, we want to uh, discuss the, the brokenness that Paul is seeing uh, in, first, in the church of Corinth, and of course we'll discuss the brokenness that we see in our, in our own world, in our own churches today, but the main takeaway should be the redemptive plan that God has put into place. And so as we uncover these things and we discuss brokenness, even you might even be sit there and consider some of the, your own brokenness um, in your marriage or outside of your marriage or whatever it might be. And as you consider those things, I want the overall theme, your overall mindset to be that God is the one who redeems. That despite the brokenness, despite the, the fracturedness of this world, that he is the God who redeems, and that is his plan. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick up uh, in verse 6. If you would, just one, one more time, stand with me uh, to honor the reading of God's perfect and infallible word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. For the married, or to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband." Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, 
the brother or sister is not enslaved, God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, once again, we give thanks for this day. Lord, we ask that you would bless your word, bless this sermon and your people today. Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers, but doers of your word. Lord, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you've been following along with us in this series throughout 1 Corinthians, uh, we've been in this for, for some time, months now, and in it you have seen repeatedly the, the church of Corinth struggling with all sorts of various sins and dilemmas and uh, difficulties throughout this church. And here is where I would say maybe one of the most sensitive topics that, of difficulties that Paul is to address, or at least that I feel in myself that it is necessary to address, that it is uh, difficult at times to talk about these things. And yet, Paul deemed it uh, not only fitting, but necessary. And so, this is the, the beauty of us going verse by verse through books of the Bible, is that it, it brings us to a place where if there are texts in it that we might not run to and jump to first and say, this is, this is a fun text that we can have a good time with as a church, it forces us to really look at the full counsel of God's Word, seeing that it is all vital, all important. And so, in verse 6, of our text, he says, now as a concession, now as a command, I say this. Um, this is, these verses, of course, should be read in association with all that is going on here in this letter to Corinth. And he is uh, speaking in regards to the, the seasons of life where a man and a woman will be married, and that he has been already speaking in verses 1 through 5 of there being times where they would abstain from one another sexually, and that this season would be a time where they would commit themselves to prayer. And so then he joins in, and he is speaking to those who are outside of marriage, those who by choice have, have been given the gift of singleness, or those who have, uh, are no longer married uh, either through uh, the loss of a spouse or uh, divorce, which he will get to. But for right m- this moment, it is the loss. And so he is saying these things and saying that this isn't a command, but he wishes others were single like him. And so this is uh, an interesting text that I think the, maybe the church really overlooks. When you look at churches, a lot of times there are uh, ministries set up for singles and and it's all programs that they might uh, mingle and then become married, and, and that's sort of the point, right? The church sometimes sets up paths in that way that we say, well, you're single, praise God, and when you become content in the Lord, he will give you a spouse. And could that be true? To some degree, for some, yes, maybe, but Paul is emphasizing here a gift of singleness, that he's not demanding, but he is showing that, and, and we'll discuss and he will see that marriage is, is beautiful and it has its benefits, but so does singleness. And the church often views singleness as the lesser of two paths that one might take, but the scripture would speak otherwise of it. And so as we look at this text, we should see that once again, that singleness is not just merely a stepping stone to marriage, um, 
but it is something that God has called some people to, and I wouldn't say most people. I think that it is a, a special gifting that God has given particular people. But even still, in it, you have to ask yourself, in, in the midst of the gift of singleness, if that's where you're at, uh, you have to ask yourself, what does God have for me to accomplish for him? And so the, the, really the perspective of uh, whether you are single or whether you are married, Christ is first. This is what Paul is going to get at, is that if, you're, if you are single and the first, most highest priority in your life is to not be single, then you're missing what Paul is getting at. He's saying that, look, like, this isn't, you're not going to find your identity just in marriage. You have to find it first in Christ. And so be patient or be, uh, be accepting even of this gift of singleness that maybe Christ has called you to. And it, of course, is difficult, and we'll, we'll go through this and break this down even further. He says in verse 7, I wish that, uh, that all were as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. And so Paul, again, recognizes both sides and the actual need for it. Like I said, most Christians uh, are, feel called to marriage, and, and some called to singleness. But whether it is uh, the Lord has called you to marriage or to singleness for some time or for your life, do not despise that gift and commit your life to it. When times I've, uh, in, throughout ministry, I've spent, I think maybe now a little bit less than half the time as a youth pastor, but for a long time spent in youth ministry and, of course, dealing with teenage relationships is the most complex thing on the face of the earth. I mean, I, I just can't imagine a more complex um, praise God, I'm not in youth ministry anymore. And then as soon as I felt, said that, I felt the Lord saying, but wait one day, you know, um, all these children, they're going to grow up. <laughs> um, and so we know we are preparing. But Paul, of, of course, recognizes uh, the gift and the commitment, but I say that to say that the young people um, who have a desire, if you are, um, I don't know if we have teenagers in here or for those that might be listening to the podcast, but a desire for a spouse, I think, is even a, a good thing, and we shouldn't despise it, and we should be even strategic about it and take it with seriousness. I, the reason why I, uh, I love this text and I'm, I'm pa- passionate about even chapter 7 is because of the value and emphasis that God puts in marriage. And then we see the contrary, our culture is so flippant about it. And so it's such a, it's, it's something that you can become a part of if you'd want to, and you can drop out of it anytime you want, and you can marry as many as you'd like, and we can even form entire TV shows, reality shows around the idea of marriage, and we can play with it and make it fun and entertaining, and we can do all of these things. And nowhere from cover to cover throughout our scripture do we see God take marriage as something that shouldn't be incredibly serious. Never does he joke about it. Never does he make fun with it or, or encourage people to just give it a try. But no, there are biblical ways in which we approach marriage or even the desire of marriage. And so 
I'm not a big, like, I'll give you five points kind of pastor, but can I just give you five points? I just, I, I, want, I had considered the idea of marriage and considered even the pursuit of it there. And so may I just give to you this morning uh, maybe some, some godly wisdom in, in maybe you yourself pursuing uh, the, the good desire of, of biblical and godly marriage. Or maybe it is even your, as parents, you are uh, with children going to one day have to navigate them to that. And so to give you a, a few points, I'd like to just say that when it comes to the idea of approaching marriage, biblical marriage, and the idea of even uh, the calling that God would put on your life toward marriage, it must first begin from the position of prayer. That, that before you even begin to pursue anyone that God has for you, you must begin with Him. And I, 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 if I can't emphasize this enough, the importance of seeking God before you seek who God has for you. It is Listen to me, it is of highest priority. Pray now, and parents, even, even pray over your children. We, uh, Kelsey and myself, we, we pray over our kids and over the future spouses of our children. When Phoebe was in the womb, we were praying, and, and I remember having my hand on, on my wife's belly and praying and saying, Lord, we pray over this child. We pray over every day that you have ordained for her, every good work that you, have, that you will lay before her. We pray even for her husband that might be in a womb somewhere else on this earth. Lord, we pray for him that you would guide him and protect him, that he would fear you, Lord, and that he would seek after you all of his days and that he would lead Phoebe to you, Lord. And so we begin, even in the womb, preparing our children for their spouse. And I would encourage you to do that, too, that do not overlook the power of prayer. Amen? Okay, just making sure that we're here. We pray, correct? We're, we're praying people. We like to communicate with the Lord who invites us to communicate with him. Okay. So we first, we, we seek after the Lord when it comes to marriage, and, and we, we understand the importance of it. I would say even just practically, the, the next point I would say is make a list. I don't think there's anything, any shame in that. Make a list of the, the things that you, would, that you desire in a spouse. And they can be, I, I think you can even make as superficial of a list as you'd like. Uh, I love looking at my wife's list before she met me. The, whatever that tall musician uh, that she had written down on the paper, uh, thankfully those were, those were a little bit lower on her list. And so she was able to kind of set those things aside, but she had a list. But at the top of that list and at the top of your list should be godliness. Number one, that your list should, should measure up with the full counsel of God's word and that if you are seeking marriage with someone outside of God's kingdom, you are in a sinful pursuit. It is a sinful pursuit. And so pray, have a list that, that matches the, the full counsel of God's word. I, another piece of advice, wisdom would be seek advice from your parents and from your pastors. Another thing that I think maybe our generation is completely missing, but uh, children, uh, you're the, the people that God has placed in your life to, to shepherd you, you should find the ability to go to them and seek wisdom, godly advice from them. I know that that is 
maybe even easier said than done, but I'm, I'm thankful for my own parents that helped walk me through uh, one girlfriend that wasn't, that, that wasn't the, the right way, and then, and then meeting my wife and even walking me through the idea of proposing to her and engagement, and even still today, giving me and my wife biblical advice for marriage, that that shepherding never stops. And so I, I say this to a, a diverse group of people because it's for all of us that a healthy marriage isn't just one guy and one girl who just decide we're going to get married and be committed to each other, but it is a, a believer, two believers, man and woman, who come together relying on the Lord, yes, and relying on the accountability of those that God have, has placed in their lives. And so seek advice, seek wise wisdom. And then to, to kind of punch in with that point, prayerfully, prayerfully consider all that has been said by those that you specifically ask. Because it's one thing to get advice, but how many times have you given someone godly advice and then they just shake their head yes and amen with everything you've said and then they walk out and just continue doing what they've been doing, right? And we're all guilty of this, that when we seek after wisdom and we receive it, apply it. And then lastly, and then we'll get back to our text Abstain until the end. Abstain from uh, any sexual relations with anyone else. Save yourself for your spouse, and I promise you, there will be no regret. This is God's plan. And so when, we, when, I, when I say that over and over throughout this sermon, I want that to be uh, ingrained into you, that, that the, the pursuit of a spouse is a prayerful pursuit that abstains everyone else, even that person, until the covenant of marriage takes place, and that godliness is of top priority. And so Paul is speaking of this, saying, yes, I, I wish that you would stay single, but if you aren't, take marriage seriously. And so he's continuing down this path. He Look at verse 8. He's uh, speaking still to the unmarried uh, verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Again, the, the idea of abstaining until the end. The, I, I, I grew up in church, and so I, maybe some of you did too, and so I experienced the true like 90s and 2000s youth group era. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Like, I experienced that thing. Whatever that thing was, I experienced it. And often it was just every sermon was like how guilty I should feel for my lustful thoughts and how one day God's going to send me a wife that I will no longer have. I can, you know, that I can have her and no longer the lustful thoughts. And that was just my mind. It felt like every youth service was that way. You know, all the guys coming up and crying and repenting uh, because of their their thoughts throughout the week or whatever it might be. But I, I want to emphasize when Paul is saying if it is better for you to marry than to burn with passion, that, that marriage may cure lust, but it will not cure brokenness. And so as we, we pause and we, we take time to emphasize the, the value of, yes, the gifts of, of singleness and of marriage we have to understand that apart from 
you will not be fully fulfilled in singleness, and you will not be fully fulfilled in your marriage. And if you try to do either one of these things, oh, well, I will be content in my singleness. Apart from Christ, you will not be content. And I will be content in my marriage. This is a beautiful woman who loves me, and I love her, and we are fully committed to one another. Okay, but it will not fix your brokenness. It will not fully fulfill you. If you have been given the gift of singleness, praise God and commit yourself to him all the more into the direction that he is leading you in that singleness. Okay, so that's the instruction for those who are single. Here is the instruction for those who are married. If married is what God has for you, then praise God and commit yourself to him all the more in the direction that he is leading you in that marriage or your future marriage. And so the instruction for Corinth is, is what Paul is from the beginning of the letter to the end is him saying, get back to what matters. That if you put Christ at the center of your marriage, it will be healthy. If you put Christ at the center of your relationships with others, it will be healthy. If you put Christ at the center, on and on the list goes. Don't you see this? Chapter after chapter, Paul telling the people, get back to having him as first priority. So these giftings come with blessing and they come with responsibility. But we also look at the, the full counsel of God's word and we see that they also come with temptation that we should be made aware of and, and be cautious of. When it comes to singleness, um, I think Solomon says it pretty well in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, it says, two are better than one. This isn't speaking of, of marriage. He's saying that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift up. The point is, is that do not think that singleness is a call to isolation or solitude. That the virtue of singleness is that it anticipates ways to be even more helpful in the body of Christ. As you are free from the regular anxieties that come with marriage. And so, if the gift of singleness is what God has for you, then positioning yourself with extra accountability will be appropriate. Because again, if Christ is not center, even of your singleness, everything else will fade. And not just with singleness, in the, in the pursuit of marriage, a familiar chapter, Proverbs 31, it says in verse 30, Charmed, charm is deceit and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The book of Proverbs ends as it begins, and that is with the fear of the Lord. But here in chapter 31, there is this practical wisdom for godly women, but it concludes with the fear of the Lord. And so, the, again, to, to emphasize the pursuit of marriage and the pursuit of the gift that, that comes with it, a warning to you that she, though she, could be, she might be beautiful and have a great personality and be fun and get along with, with everyone and check off all of those things on your box, and yet she does not fear the Lord and he is not within her, then everything else around that will fade. That if, again, if Christ is not the center... It will fade. 
A godly woman desires a, her husband to rule over her as Christ has ruled over the church. And so be cautious in your pursuit. I think Paul also mentions in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 the, an idea, I think, of what godly men should be. Chapter 4, verse 8, or while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so like men, while the decision-making process of finding a, a spouse, while we're in that process, women are tempted to look sometimes at, at the external or even the emotional qualities of a man that will help her feel secure in ways that she may not. But if Christ is not the center of his life, then he holds no promise for this life or the next. I don't know about you, but I don't want my daughters pursuing any man at any point that doesn't have the promise of this life and the next. What else does he have to offer her? Lord, help the, the man who comes to me one day and is qualified in every area to protect and provide for my daughters except this one. I'm not saying you shouldn't be a provider, and I'm not saying you shouldn't be a protector. Even Paul is saying, while bodily training is of some value. So I, I also, you know, I, you know if, if my daughters bring to me a, a godly man, but he, and he can't even, you know, lift himself out of the chair on his own strength, I mean, uh, it would be hard to protect, but still, Christ is center. And that must be the thing, the one who gives identity when we see, especially young people, and I, I say young people, but I don't know. Like, the, the older I get, the younger I feel. Does that make sense? Because the older I get, I realize that the problems of my peers are still seems like we're not moving past sometimes 7th, 8th grade. Are we there? Does it, does it always get, I mean, I'm only 34 years old. Does it continue this way? Okay, that's scary. So, okay. But, but, but that is the way it is, right? That, that we're, we look around and you, you expect maturity and wisdom around you, and yet there is still middle school drama. And so we, we have this, uh, this people, young people, uh, older people, who are in the, the process of finding a, a spouse, and they're looking again for for their identity to be fulfilled. They're missing. They're beginning the, the, the process with the wrong intentions. And so I, I encourage you that as you begin the, the prayerful process of considering a, a spouse, that you not just be filled with holy advice, but rather the Holy Spirit. That if you go into a relationship empty and desperate for fulfillment, that you will quickly become extremely disappointed, or worse, you will place the unfair title of Savior on the shoulders of your future spouse, and you will crush them, and you'll be miserable within that marriage. Your spouse, listen to me, your spouse is not the solid rock on which you stand. They are not your rock. They are there and they stand upon the same cornerstone that you do. And that, of course, is Christ. Godliness must be the highest priority in our prayerful journey toward matrimony. 
that, that the, the idea of flirt to convert is not biblical and it is unsafe. I'm just going to let you know. Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go and date him and, and I'll, I'll get him in there. I'll get him to church. That is unbiblical and unsafe. Flirt to convert is found nowhere in your text. Do not find a man that is simply willing to come to church with you. But instead, he is so immersed in the pursuit of holiness that you would be embarrassed to ask him to not go to church. And while we're on that topic, uh, I'll also say that do not think that a man or a woman that is in church means that he or she is in Christ. Just because they attend does not mean that that is necessarily who God has for you. And so this is the, the gifts in which God has given and which Paul is displaying here. And so as we, we get ready to move on, I, I also want to, to speak to this this group too. If you, if you feel that you have been given the gift of singleness, but you are already married, stay in your marriage. Stay the course. Remain committed and pray that God would once again stir your affections toward your marriage or your children that you once had or you now desire. He will hear, listen, he, he will hear your desire to love and lead your family and he will help you. I promise you. Keep striving and know this, when it comes to divorce, and that's where we're, we're headed next, when it comes to divorce, that that is a word that is, that is, it should never be allowed in your home. Never. Before, before I was married, that was a commitment my wife and I made to one another, that we would not mention it, that we would not talk about it, we would not consider it, and we would not joke about it. We stay so far from that word, it doesn't even exist in our home. It's not an option. And yet, it does exist, this uh, divorce. And we see it not only in the, the New Testament, the Old Testament too, but here in verse 10. Let's look at it. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife, should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. When it comes to the, the topic of divorce, there was a, uh, well, I'll say this, in 1948, there was a, a Harvard social historian. His name was Sorokin, and he wrote an essay that he pointed out there at this time uh, that around 1910, the divorce rate in America was right around 10%. And that from 1910 to 1948, it had doubled to 20%. And so this historian, he says this, he, he indicates that, he says, if, if a quarter of the homes in any given nation are broken by divorce, then the stability of the nation cannot endure. Its culture is torn to shreds, arguing that the family unit is the most basic and found, fundamental, I'm sorry, is the most basic and foundational unit of every society. He said that when it breaks, that society itself suffers and has a shattered existence. God's plan is unity in the family. And we see this because of the, the outright assault that the enemy puts on the family. We see it in being assaulted from every direction, don't we? That men are being attacked, fathers, husbands are being attacked from every angle 
Women, wives, mothers are being attacked from every angle. The, the pressures of, of social media and comparison culture and, and the, the feeling of men feeling inferior and, and not being able to lead and, and being tempted by the, the unlimited and embarrassing amount of pornographic materials that exist in this world. The overwhelming influence of secularism that has even infiltrated into the church is attacking the family at its core. And that was 1948. I mean, you know, the, the divorce rates, rates have, have increased all the more, closer now to 40, 50 percent. And you, you might be surprised and maybe feel relief for a second that the divorce rate in the last 10 years has actually went down in America. But then you would be grieved to find out that it is because cohabitation has multiplied tenfold. The point being is that divorce is so flippant that marriage is not respected in our, in our society and divorce seems to always be on the table to anyone, even in the church. But especially here in Corinth, there's a, there's a, a cultural issue that's taking place that, that, that we know that Paul is dealing with particular problems. In Finlay's book, The Expositor's Greek Testament, he states in relation to the, the culture that was happening here in Corinth that Christianity had powerfully stirred the feminine mind at Corinth. He goes on and says that there was believed to be a feminist party in the local church which had evidently claimed freedom to desert or to divorce a husband. And so there was this movement that was ushering in the idea that divorce can just be done because you just want it to be done. He continues and says that some wives uh, in Corinth, the ultra-spiritual temper, may have even gone as far as divorcing their husbands due to his lack of spiritual desire or giftings. And so you see that divorce was being justified for those that, that wanted nothing to do with the Lord or those that wanted more to do with the Lord. If you feel that your spouse is slowing you down in your pursuit of the Lord, the answer is not shed the spouse. It isn't. Seek the Lord for them. Do your best to bring them alongside of you, but go to the Lord first. Regardless, divorce was looked at as something that anyone could do, no matter the reason or even without reason. Tacitus, a Roman historian and politician that was there during this time, he, there was writing, there's all sorts of very interesting ancient writings on a marriage and even divorce, but he says this of divorce. He says, uh, speaking of his current culture, where Paul existed in this time, he says that divorce is so widespread and readily enacted for a wide range of reasons, including social aspiration or even personal taste. There was a, there was a real issue taking place in this culture. One historical writing I found outside of Scripture said that it was documented that one man divorced his wife because she spoiled a dish for him. Just made the wrong meal. What, you burnt that? What? See ya. So flippant about marriage. No reverence. It does sound like today, doesn't it? No real reverence when it comes to marriage that that even the the wedding ceremony itself has turned into some big weird performance it's sickening i have certainly 
denied way more people in agreeing to do their ceremony than I have accepted. Because when I sit down with a couple, I, we, ha- we have to know first and foremost that Christ is the center of this, right? And then as soon as the bride says no, I say, I got to go. <laughs> this ain't your day. I know that it is a special day, and it should be, and it is a day that, that the bride is celebrated, and there's beautiful biblical analogies to the ceremonies that we have adopted, and even a lot of ceremonies from pagan culture, and, and I'm not saying that God can't redeem those things, but even your marriage, the marriage day itself, isn't about you. And that's the problem with our culture, is that everything is about us. Everything. Everything. And so Paul is speaking about marriage and, and using words, I'm sorry, using the Lord's words to do so. He says in verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Uh, and so Paul isn't, he is, um, he is directly urging the believers to obey the voice of the Lord. And so when he says this in this way, because then eventually he'll say, this is not the Lord, but my, my words, he's referring to Jesus' words here in this text um, in relation to what, how Jesus responds to marriage and divorce that's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account. And, so, and we can look at that. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 10, in reference to marriage and divorce, you might remember as we went through Mark, and now we're back in it here for a moment, that uh, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees in an effort to trick him and discuss divorce to him. And they bring up the topic, and it says in verse 11 of Mark 10, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. If people grant divorce in situations where God does not, then the couple is still married in the sight of the Lord. Therefore, remarriage is uh, remarriage of illegitimately divorced people constitutes entering into an adulterous relationship. This is God's word. And so the Apostle Paul's command regarding divorce as possible is only uh, through select circumstances and it applies a key truth, and that is with the overall understanding that marriage is a lifelong union that should not be dissolved under petty reasons and should not be dissolved, if possible, under any reasons. And so I'm sure that here in Corinth and even today that the, the issues that are dealing with in marriage that Paul is speaking to, they, they range, I'm sure, from the petty to the very serious. But Paul has been thinking about these things. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 how he begins in verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So Paul has been given specific issues that are going on, and so we we should keep in mind that this letter is a response to specific things that Paul is dealing with. But Jesus, in Mark 10, is not dealing, I don't believe, with, with necessarily a specific instance, as, of course, there are many people, many different reasons as why people choose to be divorced. But here, the Pharisees are trying to corner Jesus. And so Jesus gives this, this blanket statement in regard to divorce, and that it is if you, if you divorce and remarry, then you have committed adultery. That is the overall statement, the blanket statement that Jesus gives in relation to divorce. 
And so, as we continue to, to discuss divorce, and we're, we're going to we'll continue to unpack this, let me be clear when we discuss it, God hates it. That that should be clear, and that it is outside the bounds, outside the bounds of the original design. And so again, that is outside of God's plan. And so I'm, I'm not going to, to stand before you as we continue to unpack difficult texts, maybe. I'm not going to stand before you and say that I can specifically answer every single question that it comes to every variable and intrinsic facet detail of divorce or maybe your divorce or the divorce that you'd like to have. And so, and, and I feel comforted in that, that Paul doesn't address every single issue here in the text, but Jesus gives us wisdom in Mark 10. In his infinite wisdom. Remember last week that, that he had been given the spirit of God without measure? John 3.34, remember? You were here, right? That, that he gives, he, Jesus has been given unlimited measure of wisdom. And so he hears a, this question of divorce, and before he goes and speaks of the covenant of marriage, Jesus answers what, he answers the, what to do with divorce, but before he does that, he speaks to what God says is true and is his plan. This, is, this will all come together with our text here in a moment. In verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 10 of Mark, one last time, look there. Verse 7, before he answers about divorce, he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And then this word, uh, chorizo, which means to separate, is what Jesus uses here. It is this idea that, that marriage is something that you should look at and value in such a way that when a man and a woman come together in, in, through holy matrimony with God and center, that they are fused as one. And this special word that is used to separate, it, it, means, it means to violate something that, is, that should not be violated. That no man should touch this thing that has been fused together. And so this chorizo is the exact same word that Paul uses in our text in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not chorizo from her husband. should not separate. Are there situations in marriage where God permits divorce? Yes. He permits divorce in a fallen world to protect injured spouses. But I would also say this, just as a person may be biblically permissible, it might be biblically permissible for them to not stay in a marriage because someone has, their spouse has sinned against them, uh, it should also you shouldn't feel required to divorce if someone has sinned against you. And so I don't want to take this topic of divorce lightly or, or say to you that uh, it is just something easy and that uh, there's just one blanket statement. But rather, it should be, it should be considered with utmost wisdom and counsel. And so we see Jesus bringing them back even further. And I know that I'm walking the text back in Mark 10, but 
We just read through 7 and 9, now look at 7. I'm sorry, we just read 7 through 9, now look at 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them both male and female. Therefore he shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they no longer are two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so, in some cases, divorce may be permissible, but in no case of divorce is sin not present. And also play the main role that this is contrary to God's plan. And so he, he's, Paul is again speaking of singleness, marriage, divorce. And he goes on in verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Again, this is not a, this isn't us we, we shouldn't take what he says next because he just says, I, not the Lord, as less. But, it, but rather, we should continue to look at this as a divinely inspired text. The, the ESV Study Bible says this. I think it's good. That Paul is not, aware, uh, is not aware that Jesus ever spoke specifically to a situation in which one spouse becomes a Christian and the other remains unconverted. He carefully distinguishes, therefore, between the written words of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels and Paul's own understanding of Jesus' teachings uh, that would apply to this new situation. And so when we look at what Paul is going to say next, if there is, there's, there's literature out there, liberal literature out there, of, of does what Paul say next actually bear the same amount of weight because of how he prefaces it? And we should be reminded of where we'll be in, in months still to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Verse 37, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I am writing to you are the command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And so we know that Paul views his words as authoritative and inspired, not, hum, not merely human wisdom, and we should agree. And so this is what he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, that he should not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, that she should not divorce him. And so we, again, to, to understand where Paul is at, the, the, the church has been, the gospel has even in some ways been invaded by pagan cultures and communities. And as a result, there is this dilemma of the church believers marrying unbelievers. And so someone may have written to, to Paul, as we saw in verse 1 of chapter 7, the question, maybe it went something like this. If, if, a, if one spouse is converted and the other is not, should the marriage be dissolved? Especially, and then to, to better their question, because Paul answers it this way, especially if the unbelieving spouse separates. So this is how Paul answers, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And some translations say his Christian wife. That is the context. And the, the unbelieving wife is made holy by, uh, because of her husband or Christian husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So let me, let me be clear, too, with this text. Though you may, uh, in, in our court system here in America, though you might be guilty by association in the court of law, uh, you are not made holy by association. Just 
just to be clear, of course, with the exception of Jesus. And so this isn't, Paul is not giving us a text here that is of soteriology, I meaning this isn't a, a, a way of salvation, that you're not just simply saved and, and going to be in the presence of, of the Almighty for all eternity simply because your spouse knew him. So the unbelieving spouse and unbelieving children in the home will not be saved because they simply know you, but they will come under Christian influence because of your life. And this is what Paul is getting at. Paul is using the similar language. It's actually very interesting. If you, if you really were to do like a, a breakdown of, of word studies, and, and I'd love to go there with you, but for sake of time, he uses the same type of set-apartness wording that he uses uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians when it comes to how people should, how you should be set apart from the world. And in some almost kind of strange way, he applies this to those who are in marriage with believers, though they are unbelievers, that in some way they have been set apart from the evils of this world, that there is a spiritual and moral influence that comes into the house of even one heir of the Most High. The lifestyle of a Christian spouse cannot, but it cannot help but affect the ethos and to some extent the values and lifestyle of the home. Whether this be the husband or the wife, the spouse's examples, witness, prayer, and living out the gospel make the spouse who is unbelieving and the children, in some sense, holy. And I would say, in, in maybe a better way, just for the sake of the English language, blessed. But they are blessed. And so the, when it comes to the issue of that unbelieving spouse leaving, he says in verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For, to peace. for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, whether you save your wife. What Paul is saying is that a Christian is not obligated to insist that the marriage stay intact to their unbelieving spouse if that spouse deserts them. Paul says in this case, if they desert you, let it be so. Paul says that the spouse, or I'm sorry, Paul says that God has called you to peace and that you should not create strife by trying to reconcile a marriage with an unbelieving spouse if they have abandoned you. This text, as you might imagine, brings a lot of controversy. There is a lot of uh, interpretation around it, and interpreters. Uh, I think most have, have held the idea that God releases the believing spouse from the unending stresses of two things. A, a lifelong vain hope of, of reconciling with an unbeliever who has abandoned the, the believing spouse. And then two, a lifelong uh, prohibition against enjoying the blessings of marriage again. So I understand the, the complexities and even the, how sensitive of a, of a topic that this could be. Because others even emphasize what Paul will say and, and will read in the next coming weeks. In verse 39 of chapter 7, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is free to marry whom she wishes, only in the Lord. 
And so regardless of the text, this is a, a controversial text and it has been uh, for centuries. As we look in verse 15, if an unbeliever or partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. And so it is this topic of enslavement that really is the, the controversy. What does it mean? This enslavement that, that Paul is saying that you will be released from is the enslavement that Paul is, says that you'll be free from speaking only of the former spouse or, it is the, or, it, or in the, to the bondage of the marriage tie, which then allows them to be freedom to remarry. Do you see the dilemma? Like the, the enslavement, what is he speaking to? This again is, is why I, I confess that I cannot stand before you and just take any and every issue of particular divorces and stand in the pulpit and rightly divide them and give counsel to them. They are unique and complex. And obviously difficult because this is outside of God's plan. And so I would urge you of the... uh, the importance and how imperative good and godly leadership and, and elders and, and pastors uh, are in your life to help deal with the complexities of marriage and even divorce at times. So I understand the, the difficulties. Marriage is complex, isn't it? There's so many, when you have uh, two people who are broken coming together in something that God has said you can partake in, there are going to be complexities. When I counsel couples before, before they have their ceremony, I, will, I always say that there is no other marriage that will ever look like yours, ever. I mean, that's just how unique it is. And so when we, we speak of Marriage, we should look at it as a holy thing, a serious thing. I hope that, husbands, that you're in this room, that you look at your wife and you see her as something to be cherished. And not just cherished, but led. And wives, I, I hope that you see your husband as leader and protector and godly. But ultimately, what Paul, the reason why chapter 7 is necessary at all is because of the unfaithfulness of people, right? One of maybe the most, maybe shocking stories in all of Scripture, I think, is that of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. He, if you, you don't remember, let me remind you by just a few verses. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for, by forsaking the Lord. God calls this, this prophet to come and take a wife of whom he knows will be unfaithful. And we see in chapters 1 and 2 that the difficulties the heartbreak of, of unfaithfulness that exists in marriage. And I am not oblivious or ignorant to the idea that in this room right now is all different types, walks of lives. Those that have been married, those that desire marriage, 
those that are married, those that have been divorced. And w- w- there are many different scenarios that are here. And I also am not ignorant to the idea that there is pain sitting in these seats right now. When the topic of marriage and divorce comes about, the pain that you might feel and the guilt of yourself and your own unfaithfulness or the guilt or the pain that you feel in a spouse's unfaithfulness. And so I, I stand before you sensitive knowing that, it, that I see and know that it can be a difficult thing that this beautiful gift of marriage can and has and will continue to be until Christ's return a main object of the enemy's attack. That he sees, that Satan sees it and he, he sees that it is good. And so he wants nothing more to destroy it. Listen to me. Satan wants your marriage. And if you don't believe that, then, I mean, I would caution you. I would say that if you don't see that there is a spiritual attack on your marriage, then get into the Word and become stronger, and then you'll start seeing how these wounds have been showing up. You've just been oblivious. So this marriage that God calls Hosea into There is a a glorious moment in chapter 3 of Hosea and the Lord says in verse 1 to him, to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. Again, this unfaithful woman who is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. And it says in verse 2, so I bought her. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a a lithic of, of barley uh, and, and he says, and by the way, that, that equals about 30 shekels, which interesting is the exact price of a slave in Exodus. Um, but he says to her, you must, uh, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also will be to you. He is saying that there is now going to be faithfulness that I'm asking of you, wife. But the story of Hosea is not just simply a story of a, of, of a wild marriage, though it is, it is the story of our unfaithfulness to our faithful groom. And so as you sit here and you hear an entire sermon on marriage and divorce and the, the complexities and, and maybe you have pain or there's strife or, or you argued on the way here with your spouse, whatever it is, that the hurt, the pain, the unfaithfulness unfaithfulness exists in your marriage because you exist in your marriage. There is one who is perfectly faithful. In fact, he commands husbands in Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church's utter holiness and moral perfection will be consummated in resurrection glory, but it is derived from the consecrating sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so if you are sitting here today and you are single, 
and lonely. I know, sitting and hearing a pastor talk about, oh, just hang in there, it's lonely, just hang, hang in there, and, you know, and I know, you see me, and I'm, I'm married, and, you, and you, you might just be sitting there festering, frustrated in the state that God has called you in in this moment, and you even shrug and say, oh, a gift of singleness? Or marry, maybe you're married and you're sitting there and, you, and maybe your spouse doesn't even know how much you're truly struggling to be content. Maybe she thinks everything's going great. Maybe he thinks that you are so happy that everything's perfect, but you know deep down that you are struggling with contentment. Or maybe you're divorced and you, you feel that you have failed or that you have been failed against and completely abandoned and you are grieved over it. Or maybe you've lost a spouse and that grief you know will weigh with you all the way on this side of glory. And so I, I end with this, I leave you with this. That though your marriage is unique and it is individual and there is no other marriage on the face of this earth that looks like it, it is not perfect. And there is no perfect marriage, but there is a perfect groom who not only bought his bride, but perfected her through his sacrifice. For you were bought with a price. Do you hear me? Let me just say this scripture, just in case you are trying to find your identity in anything else, even your spouse. Hear these words, that you were bought with a price, like Hosea standing there while Gomer is on the block, filthy and unfaithful and adulterous and and evil and wicked and, and resenting of her husband. Hosea buys her despite her unfaithfulness. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, knowing that you were bought from your evil ways, not with perishable things, not with 15 shekels or a few bushels of barley or even silver or gold, but with the things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the lamb without spot or blemish. Praise God for the perfection that we can rest in and the perfection that our imperfect marriages must lean upon. May Christ help us. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.